Afo, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Every day I try to wake up with a positive attitude and, and happy. So very rarely will you hear me say that I'm not doing well or I'm having a bad day. Because I don't really believe in that. I think you can have bad moments. But for the most part, we should always be happy and pleased and enjoying life. So I'm always... But how how do you how do you surround yourself with positivity if in your you know in your environment there's a lot of negative energy around you? I remove it, so I think it's less about surrounding because maybe I'll just be by myself, and I actually do like to be by myself. Something that people don't really know that much about me is that I'm an introvert. Many people don't believe I, it. I, I I also doubt that. <laughs> it's true. You can check my Myers Briggs test, but for me, what I found is that other people can be draining. And having to deal with other people's uh, energy or their uh, their unique take on things, especially if they're always bringing their problems down, it can negatively affect you. So instead of going out and trying to find positive people, my first thing is always to remove and stay away from spaces that are not energizing me or encouraging me and things like that. And then I can go out and find some good people. Well, I mean, you know, for the kind of work you do, you do get to um, meet a lot of people, mentor a lot of people, right? So you always have to be accessible. Hmm? How, what happens when, you know, you meet negative people you have to mentor? That's a very challenging one. That's a very challenging one. I think there's something powerful in telling people about themselves. I, it could be politically correctness. It could be... We don't want to put ourselves in other people's business, which is very weird because I find that, particularly in Nigeria, we like to talk about other people, but we sometimes don't want to give them real, honest feedback. So we either talk about them in a very superficial way or we talk about them behind their back. But very rarely, if we see someone is struggling or we see that someone is having a bad day, do we stop and say, hey, I see that this is a problem or I want to be honest with you. The way I'm perceiving you is not in a positive way and I don't want to work with you what's going on how can i help i don't think we have enough of those conversations we just act as if they just have a bad attitude because they have a bad attitude so i think about it like if you have to wake up at 4 a.m to get ready and there's no light yeah there's no water then you now sit in traffic for three hours to get to work then you get to work and your boss is yelling at you by the time i meet you a couple hours down the line you're probably going to have a bad attitude and you're not going to be positive yeah so there's a bit of empathy there's also telling people so there was this one entrepreneur who was in a program, and I just thought she really had a bad attitude. And I was just like, I could, one, just choose to say, this girl has a bad attitude, let me not talk to her. But instead, I talked to her. I said, listen, I don't know what's happening, but I'm not getting a good vibe. And if people aren't getting a good vibe from you, they're unlikely to want to work with you, and they're not going to make recommendations. And what she then said was like, oh, my gosh, thank you for telling me. I had no idea wow. I was putting off this vibe or I was this perception. And, you know, I'm, I don't have a bad attitude. I'm just shy. And so for me, when I'm in a group setting, I choose to be more closed off, right? But I'm actually not in a bad mood. I'm very happy to be here. And that changed the way that I viewed her. And it's because I gave her a chance. I didn't assume that it was just a bad attitude to have a bad attitude. Quite, quite interesting. Um, and that's because you've also, like, met a lot of people down the line. You've mentored a lot of people. You've, um, what kind of people have stood out for you? You know, the people you say who close themselves off. How do you, I mean, approach them? I know you have the conversations with them, but it's tough. You know, how do you talk to people who don't have that vibe that, you know, you would necessarily see in that kind of setting? Yeah, well, the beautiful thing is it's not by force, right? You really do, but so much. So I think we all have a responsibility to be open and understanding 
to have that conversation. But then on the other side, you as a potential mentee or you're looking for investment, you're looking for a job, you also have to be self-aware to understand that I need to put myself in the best position to take advantage of this opportunity. So the people who do the best with me are those who take feedback. So say they realize that something is not working the first time. They're actually open to learning how to improve. And then once they get that feedback, they try. I don't know. I just, I really don't like uh, meeting people who feel entitled or feel as if because I'm here, therefore you have to talk to me or I deserve a mentor or I deserve this kind of help. At the end of the day, nobody deserves anything, right? You get what you work for yeah. or you get what you're able to somehow finagle or finesse. But if you aren't out there working or trying to get that, then opportunities are not going to come to you. So I always am looking for people who do for themselves people who follow up. You know, we had this volunteer who worked at a previous event. She was proactive about saying, hey, I have this idea. Hey, what do you think about this? After the event, she even reached out and said, hey, I'm looking for an opportunity to intern or to work. These are my qualifications. Like, she's not waiting for things to come to her. I think those Going people are get it. Yes, you have to go out there. And I think those kind of people are the ones that are most likely to find success at the end of the line. I've had conversations with young people, you know, and... Um, you know, one feedback I've gotten when I've had those conversations, feedback I've gotten from the older generation, say, you know, the millennials, hmm, the 30, 30 years old, 30 plus years old, is that the new generation coming up, they are pretty much entitled. Do you share that opinion? <laughs> Me, that I think I'm young. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think... How old are you, by the way? I'm 31. So I'm definitely a millennial. Yeah. Uh, and I am one of the oldest people in the company. So I think I'm the second oldest person in the whole company. It's a young company. Yes, 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 yes. What I've found is that uh, people have a lot of confidence, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? It's great, we, especially for young women. I want to see more young women have confidence. I want to have more young women who believe in themselves and their skills. The challenge comes when there's not much to back it up, right? And if you believe that you deserve X, Y, Z without any results or research or even experience. And that inexperience doesn't equal years, right? You can be very experienced at something because you studied it, because you've decided to make it your craft. Yeah. Even if you've been doing it for a year or two, you know the most about it more than anyone else. So I, I wouldn't say that we've met people who've been entitled, but I do think that the perception is skewed. And we've told people that uh, once you start doing something, bam, you're going to be a success. Or if you apply for this job, you definitely will get it if you come in there and you're smiling and you're happy. Yeah. So we've taken out this work element. Yeah. And I think maybe things look too easy, things look too sexy, but whatever it is, people don't see that once you start something, it takes a long time to be an expert at it. You actually have to do the work. That's putting your 10,000 hours. Yes. And so you can be good, but if you want to be better than anyone else and command their respect, the salary, the opportunities, whatever you're looking for, you have to be better than everyone else. And I think that message is, is missing out, is that it's not okay to have an interest or a passion in something. You have to figure out how to be exceptional and really great at it. And unfortunately, many young people come to the workforce or to a business, and they don't know this. They're like, oh, well, I've been here for three months. I'm ready for promotion. And yeah. They're like, ah. Like, if I can do your job and I don't need you, you will not get a promotion. Right? Wow. You get a promotion when you can do it better than I can. Or if you leave, I'll be devastated. But until that point comes, then you, in theory, are still replaceable. And as long as you're replaceable, then you haven't carved out your niche in the company or in the, the opportunity. So um, 
I don't know if he's the right title, but they're confused, definitely. And don't you think, you know, social media just kind of amplifies it right now? Because it looks so cool to be an entrepreneur now, <laughs> right? It looks so cool to, hey, I want to do my own thing. You know, I saw this guy on social media. He's doing his own thing. He looks really good. He takes these fancy pictures, mm -hmm. you know, and all that. And, you know, you get up and you start the business and you say that it's more than that. That that's really a sad thing because I think there's a lot of joy. I found so much joy in being an entrepreneur. I, I love it. Every single day I wake up and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go to work. But it is not that sweet. And I also really enjoyed when I had a, a formal job and I knew my salary was coming every single month. And, and uh, I knew that this structure was in place and there were all these things to support me. And so I, I wish that there was a more balanced perspective I think the entrepreneurship journey is quite lonely so it is very hard to show someone what it's like when you're sitting by yourself at the table at 11 o'clock at night and you're trying to figure out how to get in contact with this potential client and they're not responding to your emails you don't have a phone number you don't know how to get it and you really really <coughs> want that very bad but you don't know how to do it it's hard to be able to communicate that to other people so we are doing people a disservice by not showing the downs as well as the ups but I, we put up something on Instagram today, and it's like, if everyone's going to be an entrepreneur, who is going to go work for these entrepreneurs to help the businesses grow? <laughs> and that's the only thing you're, the only way you're going to make a lot of money, the way you're going to be able to have time to be flexing on Instagram, is if there's somebody else there to take that picture of you. Yeah. But if that, picture who, if that person who's supposed to take the picture says they, too, want to be an entrepreneur... They need their own picture. They need their own picture. We're all just going to be out here not able to grow and scale. And especially when we think about it in the African context, there are so many small, small, small businesses, right? But we need companies that can hire and can employ 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 people. And that requires people to say, you know what? I can better serve this purpose, this passion, this mission that I have if I'm working inside a company, if I am supporting someone else's vision. It doesn't mean that you lose your own passion. It doesn't mean that you're now a sellout or you're not ambitious, that you've just chosen to execute that in a different way. Who knows what happens to my company? My company might blow, I might get rich, and then I might go work for someone else. It doesn't mean that you have to perpetually only be your own boss, boss. right, for the rest of your life. I think there's so many, hopefully you have a long-term career that can go in and out, but this thing is hard. We need more good people as managers, as team members, as leaders inside companies so that these things can actually grow and make the kind of money that they need to make. Do you think it's an African thing to constantly compete and not consider partnering or collaborating? I don't know if it's an African thing. I do think we have a thing around being your own boss. I do think we have a thing around uh, being nervous about other people. Right? There's a trust deficit. Yeah. Definitely. So I don't want to share my idea. I don't want to share this concept. If I open my mouth too big, someone will steal my destiny. That's definitely something that happens in our community, which I think holds people back from being open to partnerships and to collaboration. Um, I think collaborations have to make sense. So both sides have to be able to generate value. Whether it's revenue, whether it's exposure, whether it's um, opportunities to new clients. But collaborations just shouldn't be for the sake of it. But I would hope that more people would have faith in their own work and what they bring to the table as well as the other people out in their fellow communities. So they would say, you know, I'm gonna trust this person. I'm gonna step out on a limb to hopefully create some magic and something that's better for all of us. Talking about collaborations, you co-own this successful media networking company called She Leads Africa. 
right? Yeah. And you coin it with Yasmin Bilo Sage. Yes. Tell me about the relationship you guys have and why you thought it best to co-own a company. Yes, so initially I had started SLA independently, uh, but starting a business by yourself is very hard, very hard. And there are many days in which I call Yasmin and I'm like, well, this thing would really suck if I didn't have a partner. And we both recognize that this, if you're trying to solve a big problem, if you're trying to build a global company, one person isn't enough. Both of us aren't enough. We're, you know, you have to build a team of really smart, intelligent, capable people to be able to get it done. So we, um, so I recognized that, okay, this thing is really hard and I actually put it on the back burner for about a year, a year and a half before I tried it to tried to build it back up. And once I did that, I said, I need to build a team. I can't do it by myself. Uh, and so Yasmin and I have a pretty great relationship, at least I think, don't ask her. Uh, I think it's good because we didn't actually start out as friends, which many people are confused about. I can't say anything about starting a business with your friend. I just know that when Yasmin and I came together, it was on a business tip, right? You said, we're trying to do this thing. We want it to be successful. It's not let's hang out and drink all the time. It's not let's, you know, party, 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 and then we do this afterwards. It's, you know, we both have this common goal of building this business. And then over time, our friendship has developed. But at the end of the day, we're both so focused on the goal that any personal issues, any disagreements always go to the side because we stay focused on the end goal. And that helps us, uh, that just helps us stay determined. And we trust each other. I think that's the only way that you can have a, a business partner is if you trust and believe that if someone says they're gonna do something, they're going to do it. If I'm unable to cover something or I can't take a call, that she's available and she can do it. Um, but then we also are able to split the things that are really our areas of expertise. So I'm definitely, on the marketing. The so you're more in the media? Yes, the media side, the digital side. So I'm always thinking about how do you create content, how you tell good stories. Whereas Yasmin's very good about operations and structure. And so she'll be pushing me like, what's this budget number? Did you overspend? And I'm just like, oh, I'm looking at the, the pretty graphics and, you know, the content and what. So it's a good balance. And I always say that you should find someone that you have complementary skills to as opposed to just finding someone who's just like yourself. But I... I, you know, we're always looking for smart people. Like, we want more people who have sense to come and join us. So starting a business by yourself and trying to do it alone, unfortunately, will not take you too far. You will always be held back by just your physical time and the amount of hours you have in a day to be able to go and execute something. I think that's also the danger with um, starting a business with your friend because you guys don't really map out your strengths and weaknesses and what you really need to set up the business. So it's most times, as I've seen, two people leaning on the same side and, you know, still, there's still an absence of, you know, um, skills or resources that you need, then the business doesn't, you know, take off. I agree. And I guess they say that having a business partner is like uh, having a marriage. Yeah. And me, I don't have a man, so I can't say anything about this. So you, you can tell us some tips if it's true or not. Yeah. But I think they said this, that you have to look at that person critically and say, will you be with this person in 10 years? And that's what you think about for a business, right? This is not something you're just trying to do for one, two years, and whatnot. And Yasmin and I had a conversation and said, are you in this for 10 years, 15 years, however long it takes, you know, to build something great? And, you know, what, when you think about your future, what are you trying to do? When I think about my future, what am I trying to do? And if you're friends, you just get excited. And it's just the, the glitz and the glamour of, oh, my gosh, you're going to start this business. is going to be so much fun. As opposed to sitting down and saying, hey, guys, let's do the paperwork. Let's really see. If you're going to tie your life with someone, yeah. are you sure that this is someone that you want to tie your life with? Yeah. 
Um, and having that conversation is also good as a good foundation and a core to come back to and say, we're coming back to it because we have these values, we want to have build this kind of future, and we want to build this kind of business. And that keeps us uh, focusing on the right direction. Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Washington mm -hmm. to two Ghanaian parents. How was it like growing up in the U.S.? And were your parents immigrants? Did they relocate? Were they born in the U.S.? It's, I think it's a funny story. So uh, my parents are born and raised in Ghana. So my mother is from Mampontang, which is outside of Kumasi. Okay. And then my father is from Nkoko, which is in the eastern region of the country. And my uncle was a doctor, and he had the opportunity to study at John Hopkins in Baltimore. Oh. And so when he went to the U.S., he had the opportunity to bring his younger brother, my dad to the US and so they had their own life in Ghana but they just said you know let's just take this opportunity and see what happens I think in their mind they thought it was just gonna be like a couple of years yeah. ended up being 30 years that they <laughs> ended up staying in America so I think I had a great childhood I can't remember anything bad or anything crazy about it how was it like growing up mm. you know it wasn't so cool to be African that's true. Growing up, right? Yeah, that's very true. I think what's so funny is, uh, you know, it's so funny because I don't know if our parents think about being African the way we do, right? I think that we're much more intentional about it. Yeah. Because I, I don't know if it's about our generation, but everything is now a statement. The way we wear our hair, yeah. our clothes, the way we present ourselves. We're always presenting and pack packaging ourselves in a certain way. Yeah. Whereas when I think about my upbringing and how my parents raised us, I definitely don't think that they thought about it, right? It's just, you are who you are. Nothing else can change it. It doesn't matter what anybody else is saying. You're just living your life. And so, I think I definitely had to think about what it meant to be African a lot more. But my parents were just, you know, living free and doing their thing. So, definitely had challenges with people not being able to pronounce your name. Mm -hmm. That's standard, right? And I definitely went to schools where there were a lot of people who did not look like me. And so, I remember I took Malta Guinness to school one day in my lunch bag. <laughs> you know, Malta Guinness looks like beer, right? Yes. But, and so people there had never seen Malta, but I loved Malta. I was so excited for that treat. And then I took it out of my lunch box, and then for some reason it fell on the ground. And so it falls on the ground, it's brown, it's fizzy. They now were about to call my, like, call the principal or something saying that I brought beer to school. And be like, all oh, these girls drinking alcohol. She's in third grade. Why is she drinking alcohol? And I tried to explain it to them. Like, no, it's just Malta Guinness. But they're like, Guinness is beer. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's, it's Malta. Like, Malta is different. So there are definitely some cultural issues. Or like, or you go to school and you smell like rice, right? Like, <laughs> the, the smells are very strong. Yeah. So there are definitely those moments where you don't know. You just want to You just want to be like your classmates. You don't know how to be different. Or you don't want to be different. You just want to be like your classmates. So I... Uh, I definitely tried to find a balance, and my parents are very, very low-key, very chill, classic Ghanaians, right? So, so your classic African parents, right? Sit in the house, yeah. read your books, yeah. right? I feel like, and so it wasn't like we were out and about all the time. I just spent a lot of time reading. I did do some sports growing up, and so it was just about studying your books, hanging out with your siblings. I have lots of siblings. Spend time with your siblings and just face your how many? How many siblings? I have four siblings. Okay, so it was a busy house. Yes, that's and I think that's another reason why I was uh, that introvert built up in me. Because when you have older brothers who won't let you watch TV and eat all your food, and you have sisters who are so loud, you just want to be in a quiet. Yeah, place, just go right? to the room and read your books. That's it. So I was always in a corner 
somewhere minding my business, which definitely has continued to today. Did you ever encounter racism as a kid or a young girl not in high school? I'd imagine so, but I can't remember that it was racism. Uh, thankfully, I grew up in a very diverse place, and then our family moved to like uh, a predominantly black county. So everyone I was going to school with, they kind of looked like me or had an affinity to the culture, right? So in, um, in school, I ended up becoming very good friends with girls from Afghanistan, right? Because they were in the same like science and technology program I was in. Yeah. But there's no way you can grow up in that community and not like the same music and dress the same way. And we still had that immigrant background. So I would go to her house and it would smell the same. Like, yeah. mean, rice is rice. Yeah. Is too, right? Yeah. And it would smell the same. So we had that understanding that we were coming from the same kind of background. But, uh, you know, everyone was cool. I think what I probably experienced a bit more was probably colorism. Mm-hmm. Right, so if everyone's black, then the only difference is kind of how black are you? Yeah, and so being of a darker skin tone, people would make comments, but uh, I never felt that it was exceptionally racism. It just makes you a little bit aware that you're different, which, um, which I guess as a young person, you have to figure out like, oh my gosh, am I going to try and change, or I'm just going to get okay or become okay with being different, which I ended up doing. So tell me about University of Chicago. I'm school, schooling there. How is it like? Living in a house, going to school for the first time. <laughs> so I enjoyed school. I think for many of us who end up being very good at school, it's an easy place, right? Because you know you study, you do your homework, you practice, take the test. Right? It's a process that makes sense, whereas the workforce can be a bit difficult to navigate. Yeah. So I enjoyed college and university. It definitely felt like a free space, so less pressure, just an opportunity to meet. I mean, funny enough, University of Chicago actually this week was named, was tied with Harvard as the number one business school in uh, in the world. So wow. Kudos wow. to Booth. Good for them. So why did you, I mean, was that one of the reasons, you know, I mean, back then, you know, you chose the school because of the quality or you just wanted to get out of Washington? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish I was thoughtful. I, it's so funny because people don't believe me, but I definitely was not a serious person growing up. I was not. I... I would always just kind of do things that I thought were interesting, but I wasn't as strategic as I am now. So um, I actually first started in the public policy program. So I did like a summer program that would give you a scholarship to go to policy school. So I started in policy school and then I got put on because other people were thinking about business school. Other people were talking about other business opportunities. And so I said, okay, me too. I want to look into it. Ended up taking the exams. I applied and I got in. I said, great, okay, I'm in business school. But then it was like a whole new world. People were talking about hedge funds, private equity. All that. I was like, I don't even know what these things are. Because, you know, if you grow up in just a very normal middle-class lifestyle, all these upper-income things, they're not even in your world. Yeah. I didn't know anybody that worked in finance. So it was definitely an eye-opening process. And that's maybe why I love school, why I love education, because it legitimately can help you jump Right, it can help you jump, and I think what I would have earned before I went to school would have been average compared to what happens as soon as you go to a certain kind of business school, and bam, you just get jumped into a separate echelon. Yeah. People now think you're smart and everything. I said, "Whoa, okay, I was the same person before I got into the school." But as soon as you have that stamp of approval, people now start to treat you differently. So I really enjoyed myself. Um, I did a master's in public policy and an MBA at Chicago and I I loved every second of it. 
of course, at the end of school, you now get tired because you're like, oh, I've been broke for so long. I want to have <laughs> some more money. I'm tired of being broke down. But it was a really positive learning experience. And some of my friends from from Chicago actually have even come to Lagos and visited me before my family. You know, before my family, I've had classmates from Booth come to visit me. So it's been a good experience. It was a good experience. Can I just ask, when was the first time you came to Africa? So apparently I was here in a when I was a baby. Yeah. And back then there were shortages in Ghana, so my family had to drive to Lome to get baby formula. Uh, I don't know what was happening back then, but I think we had all kinds of crisis. It was the 80s, yeah. Crisis currencies. Mm -hmm. And um, I got so sick. And my parents were so nervous because they're like, ah, we have a baby in Ghana. We don't have, like, you know, we can't take it to the doctor. I mean, Lome is what? Is it three, four hours from across? So they had to drive to Lome to get things because apparently things were flowing through there. So after that, when I was a kid, the next time actually was when I was 12 years old. Okay. And I always ask my parents, like, ah, why did it take so long for us to come back? And my parents are very real. They said, you kids are expensive, right? Like, it's expensive to be able to take four kids to Africa is it every summer they were going to do that right and of That's course expensive. I have older siblings that were going to college at the time and they were just like guys you know this thing is not easy right you have a, a nice life in the states but that means you have to balance yeah um, and what I think is very interesting because that also means that it was you know how many years that they didn't get to see their own family yeah right that they were living in a have been painful for them as well yeah and I think that when you're a kid you don't think that your parents actually have feelings you don't think your parents are real people your parents are as superheroes yeah, yeah they're yeah. just there to just serve you right yeah. <laughs> just to help you but then as you get a bit older you think about the sacrifices yeah and so um when i was 12 we took a family trip for a month and i know they probably were saving up so much for, for us it. to be able to do that um and then what's the feeling like going to to ghana mm, we were tourists yeah, right? <laughs> it was sweet because i didn't have to cook i had to clean i was just relaxing going to the beach but did you did you already have you know um um your own perspective of Africa at the time or African countries at the time, you know, what you watched on TV, you know, to save this little boy, all you need to do is put a dollar in it, you know, and the ads and all, and all that, or reading about UNICEF, you know, saving and curing malaria for years, or our USAID and the other, you know, um, um, NGOs had to help Africa. You know, the, the, the grand misconception yeah. African countries had. Did you have that as a kid? No, because I think I never allowed it to, you know, permeate into my brain, right? You see that stuff. But I never believed it. And it could just be because I had, you know, Africans in my house, right? Like, in Africans down the road. Yeah. I saw that that wasn't actually realistic and whatnot. And so, I never, it never, uh, it never got into my head like that. So, so touchdown in Accra, what's it like? It was enjoyment, right? It was enjoyment. Uh, eating all my favorite foods, going to the beach, walking around, hanging out. It was a good time, but it still was a separate life right i always thought that i would just stay in america and work in dc or baltimore and just live my life there and it's like it's an expression of africanness right i think we all let's say have a spectrum yeah and so you can choose how hard you're gonna go in terms of expressing it yeah and i just felt like well isn't like i don't need to express it i don't need to do anything active about it because i was born this way i have the name right i have the hair right i <laughs> i have this cultural identity that I don't need to flex on. And so I was like, okay, that's nice. Like maybe I'd go back, you know, just to visit once my in parents every retired, you know, once to do that stuff. But I didn't think I was going to actively make it part of my life. Okay. So you're done with school. Um did you start at McKinsey or did you go to the London School of Economics? 
in between, um, when I was in Chicago, I went to London School of Economics. And then after I finished school, I was very grateful to get an offer to come to, to Lagos for McKinsey uh, and Company and spent uh, more than two years. Also, you worked, you came directly here. You didn't work in, in the U.S. In between, in between undergrad and grad school, I did work in the U.S. and spent some time in Asia. Uh, then I came here directly after grad school. Okay. And all your time through school and post school, did you intern at any? Did you have interning jobs? Did you have side jobs? I was always busy. I <laughs> so um, in Maryland, which is the state my parents were living in, you can get your license when you're 15 years old, right? but you have to take a class. So I think the class is maybe like $400. No license for to drive. Okay, a driver's license. 15. Yes, when you're 15 and nine months, you can get you can get your driver's license pretty early. But you get like a you get a learner's permit, permit or whatever, and then you can get your full one, like when you're 17 or something like that. But you have to take a class first, and so that class was about $500. And of course, my parents were not going to pay for it, so I had to get a job so that I could learn how to do that. So I worked at an amusement park for two summers so that I could save the money so that I could get my learner's permit, so I could take the class and get my learner's permit. And then I also worked. I always had a job because I definitely wanted to be independent. I wanted to buy my own things. So I definitely worked so I could buy my first laptop before I went to college because I wanted to have a laptop when I went to college. And then I, I worked and I interned every single summer, every single chance I got. At that time, I thought I was going to work in politics. So it was always politically oriented jobs, interning at fundraising firms or for um, members of government or working in community groups. Uh, I worked in City Hall in Baltimore. But I always wanted to do something that I thought was giving back or supporting the community in some way, shape, or form. Tell us about the importance of internships. Yeah, I think they're important as a reality check. Many of us have this grand idea about what our future is going to look like or what this job opportunity is going to look like. But an internship should be just kind of how can you figure out if this is actually where you want to go. So for us, all my internships help drive me in a certain direction, either from the people that I met, saying, okay, I really like these kind of people, I want to find more of them, or in the roles. Like, I learned very early on that I didn't want to work in a nonprofit because uh, I, I worked in one for the summer, and I was like, this is nice, but it's moving real slow. <laughs> I was like, I don't really like this pace. Right? And I liked, um, I liked working in the in City Hall because I liked the executive office, right, because I liked being at a core decision maker, whereas there are other agencies that you rely much more on other people. Yeah, lower level. Yeah, so you learn kind of what your preferences are and whatnot. And then you also are able to build skills. And I think any opportunity you can to build skills. So I volunteer for stuff, like even before SLA, I was volunteering for conferences, volunteering at different events, one week, two weeks, it doesn't matter. So I think the more opportunities you have to meet other people and to show them what you can do, the more likely you are to be referred for opportunities or for someone to take you seriously when it's time for you to actually apply for a role or to join an organization. So every single internship or volunteer opportunity, I think was helpful because it also demonstrated that I could work. And so people could see that, okay, we can take a chance on this person because at least we know she can work for a couple of months and she can keep something. She won't yeah. just disappear yeah. just like that. So um, I every single, every single summer, even while I was in school, I would still intern and work. So I thought it was just a good way to, to stay active. And what else are you going to do 
besides partying, right? Yeah. You have more time. So go out there and just use your time wisely. Um, some will say, you know, there are limited opportunities in terms of getting an internship that really aligns with what you're pursuing. What's your advice on people, you know, interning at a place that directly doesn't, you know, align with your vision? So, for example, I mean, I'm a journalist now, but I've interned at an oil and gas service company, you know. And you kind of give me some of the experience I've used now, sort of answering your question, but what's your advice on that? I think that you have to understand what you want to get out of it. Not every single time will it be learning one specific skill. You might say that you want to learn finance just because it's important for you to know how to manage money. Or you might say that you want to learn what it's like working at a multinational or a foreign-owned company versus a local company. So before you go into any situation or before you apply for any opportunity, you want to know what success looks like. Right? And say, I will feel like this internship was successful if I was able to meet these people, I was able to travel to these places, I got to attend these meetings, or I built these skills. Right? And you can do that anywhere. It doesn't have to be in one particular place. So I work in media now. I did no media work at all when I was a consultant. Not once, right? But I definitely know how to tell stories because you're still communicating an idea. And you're figuring out how do you take this complex business problem and how do you break it down so that people can understand it. That's a skill that I can use in legitimately any industry. So, But if you're aware about the skills you're trying to build, then you're able to make sure you're on the right projects or you tell your mentor or internship coordinator in advance so that they can look out for you and hopefully put you on those opportunities. As simple as event planning. Event planning can teach you budgeting. It can teach you communication skills. It can teach you negotiation skills. But you have to come at it with the right mindset. So if you're just complaining like, oh, I want to do this, but I can't do this, then you're not looking at it in the right way. You want to think about how do you maximize any and every single opportunity so that you're able to get something out of it. And then you can go speak about it for the next job opportunity or the next um, position that you're applying for. What year did you join McKinsey & Co. in Nigeria? 2013, so the same year I graduated. So I graduated, my father helped me pack up everything in America, and he yeah. was like, please, this is never coming back. So if you move <laughs> it to Lagos, it's going with you. He wasn't worried about you leaving. You know, you know I think my parents by now, they know I'm a bit of a rascal, right? I've been, I've lived in Malaysia. I traveled through Southeast Asia. You know, I spent a summer in Lagos. I think for me, they just said, like, I had the girl is the girl is smart. But also, like, you, if you raise your kids, hopefully they <laughs> keep that sense, like, when they continue to go out in the world. And so th I think they were a bit nervous at first. But they said, okay, well, McKinsey's a good company. And, you know, this girl is somewhat sensible. So And if it doesn't work out, she'll just come back. Yeah. She'll go do something else, yeah. right? And so they packed up everything in a container shipped my whole life and so uh, I then got on a plane you know in August to to come move my whole life to Lagos to start work here and how was Lagos was there any culture shock mm, it wasn't culture shock right I think I'm pretty adaptable thankfully over my experiences I can kind of go with the flow the major challenge is just starting a new job while you're in a new country yeah so I was in Lagos for at least three months before my stuff got here, right? So you're like, you're like, I just want my clothes. I just want my shoes. Why, why did it take so long? You tell me. I don't know why. And I'd be calling the shipping company. They're like, oh, no, it's on the way. It's on the way. So my stuff definitely didn't get to Lagos until at least November, December. So we're talking three months. In August, yes. 
yeah so i was you know i just had two suitcases that i was living out of and of course you don't want to move into a place without because my bed was in the container <laughs> my bed was there my dresser was there so you know you also can't be settled uh, but i mean you would have bought furniture here i could but then you also want to manage your money it was a new country i just you know it was it was unsettling so i think that was the major shock is that when you move someplace you just unless you have like a, a settled home life and of yeah. course i didn't have any family here mm -hmm. i didn't have it's not like i was going to anyone's house on the weekend no friends no friends it was just people that i worked with and so i remember you know thanksgiving is a big holiday in the u.s yeah and so my parents this is a tradition they still do now five years later they would call me on skype so that it would be like as if i was at the table with them yeah and then they passed the the phone the around phone. to everybody so that I could see what everyone was eating. And that was their way of making me feel like I was at Thanksgiving and I was just sitting in a random place like, this is this is not nice. <laughs> I was like, I want to eat this too. So uh, it was just not having like a settled home life. That was the most shocking thing at first. What was your primary job assignment at McKinsey? Well, everyone, you know, as a consultant, your job is just to help your clients solve their problems. So it varies in terms of the industries that you might be working on or the particular business problem. But at the end of the day is you want to help your clients be successful in whatever goals that you set out. So it's a lot of research, it's a lot of analytics, it's a, a lot of communications and whatnot. So it definitely varied, which is why I think it was a fantastic breeding ground or kind of training ground for me. And I actually wish that I would have done it after undergraduate school. And so I encourage all kind of young people, if you're fresh out of school, try and find those companies that are going to train you. So McKinsey definitely trained me. And so if it's a corporate job, like a, a lot of corporate leadership programs, McKinsey has leadership programs for fresh graduates and for NYC, after someone does NYC. But the training that you have, it really just focuses, it helps you just be a better business person. And so now, regardless of the problem that I face. I'm thinking about it in a structured way. I'm trying to be strategic. And the problem can be, how do I, you know, spend a little bit of money and save it for the rest of the month? Or it can be, you know, we have this business goal for the end of the year. How do we want to break it down and solve it? Um, and so that's what you learn. And you just apply it to different problems as they come along with different clients that you have. Talking about research, you know, sourcing data, that's a huge problem in Nigeria because access to data can be very limited. You know, storing the data is even a problem. You probably want to go to, you know, institutions that have been around for decades now who, you know, had probably had their data on, in notebooks that are missing. What was the challenge there? All of those and more, right? I think first is people understanding what they can do with data and how it can impact business decisions. And that's something that we think about in our own business in SLA it's saying it's not enough to have a database it's not enough to have someone sign in when they come to an event it's how can you use this information to serve them better and having that customer service mindset and saying you know if someone is interested in preparing for a job interview how do we make sure that their experience from start to finish is tailored towards that so we're not wasting their time we're not giving them things that they don't care about and that this actually will enhance the person's experience so for us, it's definitely about getting people to understand the value of it. And then the second one is about creating structures so that it's not just a one-time thing, you know, when your boss is asking you where are the numbers, but it's something that people are doing consistently and they're replicating it so that every single week is we're looking at the data, every single week we're tracking it and it's coming in. Um, and then also being creative and listening to your audience and saying, how can we use this data quantitatively, qualitatively to continue to enhance and do better? Because if you're not growing, 
from these numbers, then it's a waste of time. But the first one is there has to be a buy-in. People have to value it. And if people think it's just a waste or they know better than the numbers, then it doesn't matter how much data you have. It won't really work out. And so you meet Yasmin at the same company. Mm-hmm. How was that relationship first before, you know, you discussed that selling with her? Yeah, she was just another girl working at the company. I actually never saw her because we traveled a lot. We both had different things going on. So she invited people from work for a birthday party that she had. And then there was like a women's dinner that she hosted. But she was just another person. Like, I just see someone like, hi, okay, bye. And that's it. Uh, we, were, we didn't talk much, and it wasn't until I actually was volunteering at a conference uh, that her mother was speaking at that she was there, and she asked me, like, okay, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, I volunteer on the weekends. You know, I like to stay active and whatnot. And she was like, okay, well, I want if you have other things that are going on, let me know about. And I think this is always an important point that I like to share with people is that at that point I had a stage because I had a decision. I had already been working on SLA. I had working on it a year before, took a break, and had already picked it up again. Yeah. So she asking me, okay, well, if you know of anything, let me know. I could have just said, okay, sure, I'll keep you posted, and just went on my merry way. But instead, I decided to, to talk about SLA and let her know what was going on and ask for help. Yeah. And many of us, unfortunately, we keep our ideas to ourselves. We keep them hidden. We don't share. If she wanted to steal SLA, I guess she could have. Uh, I definitely think that she wouldn't have been able to, right? Because when you have a vision and a purpose and a plan for something, someone just can't, you know, take it like that. Yeah. But I decided to be open and to say, yeah, this is the thing that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that I did because she definitely brought a whole different dimension to the company. She was um, very efficient, right? She she was actually, like, pushing me, like, um, okay, you know, we talked about this. What are we going to do? And it definitely just helped take the company to the next level. So um, that chance meeting... You know, at a conference that we were at, is yeah. where I actually got the ball rolling. Wow, right wow. SLA's primary focus is primarily focused, you know, towards the millennial African woman. Why? I believe that there's a gap, right? There's a gap. So older women, there are programs, there are services that that uh, speak to them, and they actually, for the most part, you know, unfortunately, have had to figure it out, whichever way they needed to. And then when we speak about uh, community programs when we speak about things that are focused on women unfortunately a lot of it is from an NGO perspective uh, yes yeah, an NGO perspective a social aid perspective and it's focused on girl child it's focused on young girls it's focused on getting girls into school and it's, it's focused, focused on health health it's focused on subsistence right basic things teaching someone how to do basket weaving how to sew sew and beading and you're yeah. like okay those are definitely valuable those are definitely needed but there's a gap, right? What about those women in the middle? So either maybe her mother really hustled hard and got her into school, yeah. right? So now she's gone through school or she's been able to build something independently for herself and she's thinking about that next level. And so there are these women right now who no one's speaking to. They're in the middle, so some people think that they have enough and they don't need help. Um, and so we saw that, that as a great audience because if those women were encouraged, inspired, and motivated, what more could they do? Right, because they already have the building blocks that we need for leaders, for innovators, for creators. Yeah. How can we help amplify their work, um, either from a content perspective, from an experiences perspective? And we thought this would be a great audience to focus on. And then of course, Yasmin and I are in that segment, so it does make it a bit easier to create something that you would want to see that you wish existed in the market. Um, and of course, it's been great expanding it beyond ourselves. But there's just a natural 
kind of connection to say, how can I help people who are like me? How can I build something that solves some of the problems that we've had and go from there? Yeah. And your, your two main channels are, you know, through digital content and live experiences. Yes. The digital content actually came second. Because the wow. idea wasn't to build a company. We had jobs, right? I had a job. I was yeah. living my life. I just wanted the side projects. I was always involved in extracurriculars. And so the live experiences definitely started first with the pitch competition. We did an event in Nairobi with Intel. We did a trip to China with Huawei. So it was definitely these offline things. We would always get these inbound requests. Someone from South Africa saying, oh, can you come and bring this here? Someone from Rwanda saying, oh, we need this here. And we're like, well, this travel ex is expensive because traveling across Africa is so tiring and it's so difficult. Um, and, you know, we, an events company has a limit to the way it can grow and scale. Yeah. So, like, well, what else can we do that can help us reach more people and help us kind of change the way we measure impact? And so for us, it's like, you know, there are millions of women who fit this demographic, who want this kind of content, uh, who are looking to connect to this type of community, how can we create something that connects to them? And that's where the digital piece came in. So for us, we're thinking about what does mentorship look like? What does community building look like? How can we encourage people in a creative and interesting way? How do we reach millennial African women where they are with content that resonates with them? And so that's what we've been doing for the past two years. Like literally not until the beginning of 2016 did we say, Let's actually turn this into a proper digital platform yeah. and see how we can grow and scale it from there. And um, you know, you got um, you got to beat four other four hundred other entries from twenty five countries to win. Um, I mean, to get the funding to start off the company, right? Yeah. So we, so thankfully, like we, this is where the strategy comes in, right? Is we just say, you know, there are a lot of other things that are happening out there. This women's thing, thankfully, it hadn't gotten that hot in twenty fourteen this type of work they were doing on women in business and entrepreneurship, yeah. it wasn't that hot there, but we knew that of course, like everyone has limited resources, right? And so how do we create something compelling that is different, that people will want to pay attention to, that people will want to invest in and support. And that's where the idea for a Pan-African PISS competition focused on women building high growth businesses. And yeah. we always focus on that high growth element because it's not enough to just say someone who's starting a business. We wanted to find those women who want a business that's going across three, four, five countries, who want to generate millions of dollars in revenue, who can be seen as examples of what success looks like. You know, when we look at Forbes, when we look at Ventures Africa, when we look at all these lists that come out about the next generation of this or these entrepreneurs are on the rise, very rarely will you see young women. So we said, okay, there's work to be done here, and how can we do it in a unique and authentic way and so by mm -hmm. coming up with this concept you know we thought it would work but we didn't actually know if people would respond Buying. to it yeah. yeah and so when we put out the call for applications we did have more than 400 people from all across the globe and we we're like wow we didn't even have any reach right there was no machine there's no Sheila's African machine back then it was just me and Yasmin and a couple of other people who were just on our laptops who are pushing it out trying to get traction and so for it to reach all the places that it did, yeah. Morocco, South Africa, Ghana, Uganda, the U.S., U.K., even people in China and Australia were like, wow, okay, this clearly is tapping into something. Yeah. And thankfully, some brand partners saw that, you know, whatever you're tapping into, we too, we want to tap, tap into. into. I mean, that's how it kind of spiraled from there. Interesting. And um, was there any struggle when it came to quitting your jobs? Yeah, being broke is not easy. So, um, 
especially for me, I, I think about it very personally, right? I, of course, I don't have family here. Uh, it's like I have a family house to go to, to just be in, in the quiet, you know, in the background on the weekends. So I definitely had to think about survival first and foremost. So anyone out there who's thinking they want to do a startup, if you cannot support yourself for at least a year, a year and a half with the money in the bank, please sit down and go to work because it's not easy. And so it wasn't until last August that we actually started paying ourselves. So if you think about we started SLA in 2014 and we didn't start paying ourselves until August 2017. That's wow. a long time to go uh, if we were just doing this full time and didn't have a salary. So it definitely required some planning in advance. So downgrading, downgrading my life, you know, this car, I don't need it anymore. Let me go and get a cheaper car. You know, finding a cheaper place to live, changing my habits. You know, people want to invite me places. I'm like, that's nice, but I'm not going. Because I know my internal limits and I know a budget that I have to keep and yeah. I have to set too. And then, you know, because it's also an investment, right? I'm investing my time, my energy, my resources to say I want this thing to be successful. But I can only do that if I'm focusing on it full time. And then I'm also able to, you know, survive and to live. So that was the main challenge is just thinking about, okay, how do I make sure I'm not so broke that I can't even, you know, afford a ticket to go home. So maybe that's the minimum balance in my in my bank account. Did you enough to buy a ticket back to my parents. Did you ever consider going back to your job or getting a new job when things got really tough? No. No, that's inaccurate. No, 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 no. That's inaccurate. I've thought about going back to a job, but not in a full-time capacity. Because I think when you're starting a business, you're always trying to find a way to work for it to work so even yeah. if this iteration or this version of it doesn't work it doesn't mean i don't believe in the idea so if i had to maybe take a break or if i had to do something to get money you know quickly just so i could have a little bit more for the business to run then i i would have gone and, and gotten a job or gone back i talk to my former colleagues all the time i'm like hey guys keep thinking about me you know in case i come back don't forget about me you know just in case but you know, as I said, this thing is what I'm focusing on. It's what I want to do, and we're just going to ride it until the end. I appreciate the honesty. You know, most entrepreneurs, I talk about who quit their jobs, and I ask them this question, like, oh, no, I never thought about it. And, you know, that's hard to believe because we're humans. You know, you get to the brink at times, and you really want to just go back and, you know, hit that 95 and get, you know, paid I want to everyone. go to Coachella. Yeah. Beyonce is at Coachella. Yeah. I want to go Beyonce, WizKid, Cardi B. Do I have Coachella money? No. Right? No. <laughs> so... If I had a job, I would. You settle for the, uh, eco you settle for Giddy Fest. Yeah, it's not a settle. Please, Chin, yeah. it's not a settle. <laughs> We're not settling. But yes, like, there are things that you definitely have to sacrifice. And I know that if I had a job, I'd be able to go. I could do whatever I, I wanted. I could live free. Yeah. But uh, there's definitely so many constraints. And so my hope, my hope is that all my friends who I left at the company, they will now move up in the company. So that when it's time to come and beg for a job again, they'll now be in charge. <laughs> and they'll be like, you know, that girl, she was okay back then. Yeah. And they'll rehire me. So when was your first networking event, the She Hive? We first did that in 2015, right? We tested out the concept in... Um, we tested out the concept in around, I think it was like September 2015. Mm -hmm. We tested it out in Lagos to see if this thing would even make sense and it was a definitely a very different concept from where we ended up at but after that first that test and seeing that it made sense we then expanded it to um we then expanded it to other cities and in that 
2016, I think we did maybe six different cities, right? We did Abuja, we did Joburg, we did Nairobi, we did London, we did New York, we did Lagos again. I'm probably even missing some some locations that we did. That's amazing. But um, that was 2016, kind of taking it on the road. And for us, it was literally about how do we just take this online experience that we know really people really like, and how do we move it to an offline an offline element to allow that community building, that networking, and um, people really responded very well to it. So whenever people say, yes, I like this thing, we just want to go do more of it and see how do we help it grow and expand while still keeping it fresh and creative as we roll it out to different cities. I mean, one thing, when you have a platform or you have, you know, a, a, a business to sell, you have to convince people, right? You have to convince people to partner. You have to convince people to support. You have to convince people to invest. What was that process like for you guys? It can be hard at first because even you as an entrepreneur, you actually don't know what you're selling, right? Because it's not about the product. It's about the problem that you're solving for that customer. And so you may think that this is the major issue that people are facing. And then you'll get a reality check and people will say, no, actually, this is it. So it definitely requires you to take a step back and listen and pay attention um, and so from our community members is we really had to think about what are their major challenges? What do they believe is hindering their professional development? What are they looking for from a platform and from a brand? And how can we do it in a way that no one else is doing it? And it definitely required refinement. So we can cons consistently continue to change the model. And that's something that we change. When it comes to brand partners, for us, it's not about being a charity. It's not about being an NGO. And so it would be much easier to just rely on, you know, the saving grace or the donations of somebody. But that's not sustainable. <coughs> and you can't rely on that to pay salaries every single month as we need to do. So that required us to definitely push and require, you know, and, and be able to make a case on what's the business perspective. Why should someone from a marketing team or from the strategy team or from the business development team want to talk to us as opposed to the foundation or the CSR team? Yeah. And that required a lot of evolving definitely required a lot of evolving yeah. and reflecting on the value that we could bring to people and definitely sometimes you have to change your products and you may think it's going to go this one way and then you realize oh actually what they care about more is xyz yeah let's how do we see and evolve and we've gotten to a point where I, we're not definitely not perfect but we've gotten to a point where we definitely have learned and we're doing better so th it makes the process easier that means we're not going after people that are not interested in us and so we're saving time. And that also means that we're better able to communicate our value proposition to potential brands yeah. and to community members as well. In your um, interview with Financial Times, you talked about connections and you talked about serving, you know, young people or the the notion of you not if you are not having if you don't have any connections, right? You you probably can't get things moving. You can't get things started up. That you know, it, it almost seems like you have to be in an elite, elite group of you know people yeah. to start things up. And you know, one of the reasons why you were starting She Leads Africa is to dispel that notion. But as a business, haven't you found out that you really do need connections? Yes, but it starts from somewhere, right? And so, actually, someone asked me at Social Media Week this question exactly, and she was like, you know, I have these events, but I don't have the connections to get high-profile people to come and I always say well why do you need to start with a high-profile person it's because you've decided that this person has more value than other people but at the end of the day you should want to grow with your people 
And so the people who are big time now, and they're only working with their big time people, it's because they've been hustling together for 20 years. It's not like they just called that person so many levels above them and that person said yes. So what I would like to see more of is how can we encourage relationship building amongst people's peers, right? And going across and lateral instead of all the way up down. Because I think it changes the power dynamic. And so my friends now, they have their tech companies, they have their fashion brands, they have these other things. And if I blow up, they're also going to grow with me, right? Because if I'm wearing her clothes and people like it, then they're going to go and buy from her and that helps her business grow. So I think it's just about, there's nothing wrong with connections. Because I think connections means you trust people, you know them, you can rely on them. The question is where those connections come from. Like if those connections only come through family and that can be quite limiting. Yeah. And only if, you know, only based on age. But I think that we can build networks amongst young women in particular that can still add value. And so it might not be, I might not be the most famous person, but I can still do my part and I can still help you from where you are. What do you have? I just, I also want to add another point to that, right? Which is so funny. Because something that we found is in marketing agencies and marketing companies, most of those people there are young women. Yeah. Which is amazing. It does me no good to try and go to the CEO or the guy. Maybe they should know who I am. But my main person I need to talk to is that young woman who probably knows about SLA. Yeah. And she's the one that manages the budget. But yeah. if I only face my time on, oh, I need to talk to the CEO, I need to talk to the CEO, I actually ignore all the other decision makers. And that's the dangerous, I, I think that's the danger in the mindset, is that we ignore everyone else who might be able to help us because that person doesn't have a title, you don't see them everywhere. But you can only imagine the power that people have in some of those hidden roles. And that person is actually your peer. You work with them, as that person gets promotions, you keep working with them, and then you never know where you all can go and grow together. How do you cater for people who can't pay for your events, to attend your events? We have some free events, right? And what we try to do is there's a spectrum, right? So there are definitely going to be some things that are at the higher end for those who want to value, those who value them and want to pay for them. But then we also try to make sure that we have things that are open and accessible um, across the way. So, of course, anyone wants to go on the website, anyone wants to be on Instagram, Anyone wants to enjoy it, like participating in our webinars, that's all free. We don't charge. Anyone can access those if you have internet. And then we try our best to do free training. So we have a new program called She Means Business with Facebook, in which we're providing free digital marketing, free coaching, uh, free support with your business in more than six different cities. So Abba, Kaduna, Lagos, Ibadan, Port Harcourt, maybe Benin, and some other places, right? Anyone can sign up and can access those. So we try to make sure that we have a healthy mix. But what we don't do is we don't allow people to tell us that we shouldn't charge. Mm. And we get that feedback. People are like, oh, you're supposed to be helping women. You should not be charging. And you're like, ah, is it that you help for free? Like, is it, like how is someone going to eat, right, if you're not able to monetize your business? And we think that we're providing exceptional value. Yeah. And therefore, it should be respected as such. We definitely want to be affordable to our audience because we know who we're talking to. But... I believe that if you want that, if you want that skirt, you're gonna pay for it because you've decided that you value it. If you want that meal, you're gonna pay for it because you, you're hungry and you want to eat. If you decide that investing in your professional development, helping your business grow, climbing that career ladder is important to you, you're also going to invest in it, and hopefully, it'll be a worthwhile product and experience to help you grow. What's your reaction to um, men who also want to attend the events? Everyone is welcome to join. The guys, it's funny enough, actually 25% of our audience on all platforms is actually guys. I think the content is useful for everybody, right? We're funny, we're interesting, we're creative. A lot of different people like that, so we never turn people away. The funniest thing is actually 
when guys feel uncomfortable. When guys feel uncomfortable in a setting that's predominantly women. And I just wish that some of those guys would stop and think about, well, think about how many times it's actually the reverse, right? Nine times out of 10, you're gonna be in a situation where there's one or two women out of a whole group of guys. And never, and very rarely do guys make a comment about, hey guys, there's something wrong with this. But as soon as you put a guy in a situation where he's the only one, he's like, I don't feel comfortable. Am I allowed to be here? And we're like, relax. I know it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. But just think about how other people feel when they're in a situation like that as well. How long do you stick with an idea before you give up? I don't have an answer for that. I think everyone has to decide what it is that they need. Uh, I think there's definitely some break-even points, right? Are you able to, to at least support yourself and support the people who are with you, that's fine. Because not every single business is going to be this hockey stick, right? We have this idea that every single business is supposed to get investment. Every single business is supposed to make millions. That's not true. That's not real life. That's not the majority of businesses. Some businesses you have, you go to work every single day. You make enough money where you can take a vacation once per year. And that's fine. And you're happy with it. And I don't want, I hope perception doesn't skew uh, the way people think about how their businesses should grow. Some other businesses, they will fail within five years, and that's the majority of businesses that are out there. I think you have to decide what your goal is and the kind of life you're trying to live, and then hopefully build a business around it. And if you think that this business is not taking me where I need to go, then you test it out, see if anyone's willing to pay. If they're not, then you move on and you try to change it. But if you're just because your business isn't making millions, doesn't make doesn't make it not a success. It just maybe means that this is the limit based on the market, based yeah. on how much you're charging. Or it just means that this is all you can do with your current resources. What's your greatest fear and how do you manage fear? I'll be honest with you, I actually don't think much about fear. I try my best to stay away from negative thoughts. I don't even watch scary movies because I don't even want those ideas in my brain. I'm telling you. The, the, the most hardcore I go is Law & Order. Like That's the most hardcore show I ever watch. Yeah. But for me, when I think about fear, I think it'd be wasting time. I think time is so valuable, and I've seen the incredible things we've been able to do in a short amount of time, but also things that you haven't been able to do in, like, a very long amount of time. So I just would hate to waste time, like, especially because if you're building a business, if you're investing a thing in something, this is all I do, right? SLA is bam, every single day, right? I could be spending time with my parents, right? You know, our parents have a finite amount of time on this earth. Yeah. I could spend time with my parents. I could be hanging out with my siblings. I could be at the gym. I could be eating mango. I could be doing all kinds of other things with my life than doing this. So I, I think my concern, I wouldn't say fear, my concern would be, am I using my time wisely and making sure that I'm maximizing any experience that I have and I'm really living it to the fullest. What's your favorite aspect of being an entrepreneur? I get to wear what I want, Sha. Like, because <laughs> that's such an issue. That's such an issue when you're in the corporate world. The way that women's bodies are policed Right? We've decided that to look professional, you must look like an old man. Right, The suits that we wear, the way you do your hair. Right, You have to, in most offices, definitely not all of them, is they really try and constrain you to fit someone else's model. And I think the best thing that I've been able to do and what I hope we encourage in our office is that get your work done. What you look like is not my business. Right? If you're here at work, wear sweatpants, fantastic. If you want to wear a long weave and full makeup, you look good. Enjoy your life. But I think the freedom to just kind of be who you are and do what you want would is like revolutionary in the corporate and the business landscape. So I like the fact that some days I wear the dress, I wear the heels, I go to the meetings. Other times I wear a headscarf and I'm on conference calls 
and I'm like, what's up, guys? What do you want to talk about? Um, what is um, what is your biggest mistakes? What have been your biggest? Let me take that again. What have been your biggest mistakes you've made? See the optimist, optimist in me. I don't know if I think about mistakes like that. I definitely wish I would have saved money earlier. Right? It's just money just provides you with. I think some people think I talk about money too much. They're like, well, when you don't have it, you have to talk about it all the time. I think it can provide you with some cushion to do things that you would normally want to do. So I think that I would have probably gone for a corporate job right after undergrad. And I would have probably started to save more so that I'd have more freedom and more space to go after some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, I can't really see any. Honestly, I think my life is quite sweet. And because I think my life is sweet, I'm always thinking about the positive sides, always looking at the ways to make it better, yeah. always like thinking about the ways to enjoy it. So I can't think about any mistakes. I'm, I'm also trying to, I also try to be proactive. So if I see myself heading in a direction that's not good, it's like you have to know yourself and, and pull yourself back from a bad thing, right? But I'm, I live in Lagos. I'm happy about that. I have this company. It's going well. I'm happy about that. We're building a team of really smart young people and investing in them. Investing in them, I'm happy about that. My parents are healthy. They they have a new house in a crowd that they've been building. You know, like your African parents go and build their house home. They finally are getting to move into that. Like I'm happy about that. So they relocated to us. Yes, 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 yes. Last month, after how many years of saying we are going back to Ghana, they finally have gone back. Right. So I think uh, the the core elements in in my life are are all good, and and that's how I choose to look at it. Instead of looking at any negative things. Do I wish we made more money? Definitely. But that will come, right? These All, all these things will come with time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I look forward to getting there when I'm supposed to get there. What's your favorite city in, in Africa? And what city haven't you been to that you are really longing to go? I love Cape Town. Right? They have their issues. But the place is sweet to us. <laughs> it looks so good in pictures. And maybe because I'm all about digital content and doing storytelling, it looks so good in pictures. I don't even think there's one part of that city where you can't take a picture and look fine. So I really like Cape Town. And the food is good. Food is cheap. I like Cape Town. In terms of a place that I have not been to yet, Dakar is definitely on the list. If only the flights would be easier to get to, I would have been there by now. But I actually took French growing up. My French is horrible now. But I definitely want to spend a lot more time in, in Francophone Africa. I've been to Abidjan. It was great. I want to spend. I want to go to Mali. I want to go to Bamako. I want to go to a lot more um, Francophone kind of West African countries, countries. as well and, and enjoy the, that experience because their food is sweet. And I, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I actually think that Francophone West African food is the best kind of food because it's still West African food. So all our flavors, all our dishes are there. But the French just have a way with cuisine. And the way they approach food. Like sort of enhance it. Definitely. And they really care about it. And so I think that combining those two, the food is fantastic. Great, great, great. Um, I mean, earlier in 2018, you guys had your first festival. Slate second Fest festival. That was our second edition. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how was it? I mean, I the, 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 the media coverage and the promotion around it was really huge. And... Um, of course, just the rollout. The rollout also was really, 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 you know, it was very colorful. <laughs> and, and I followed the event, and I had a couple of people from the office even, you know, attend the event. I paid for a couple of girls in the office to attend the Thank event as well. And, you know, just watching it from social media, 
because I felt, hey, you know. Next time, I'll give you a VIP pass. You know, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be there. Maybe it's a girl thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But um, just watching it from social media and looking at all the pictures, it it looked really successful. Our goal is to create an experience that people want to come to from all across the continent, from all across the globe. We definitely think that there is the opportunity to create something that is about innovation, it's about culture, it's about technology, and it's about young women at the center. Not on the side, not as, oh, we're doing a panel and we don't have any women, let's add them on. We're saying, no, what would it look like if we created this experience in this festival that was fun, that was colorful, that was entertaining, but it was focused on smart young women. So we've been blessed to be able to do two editions of Slave Festival. We, we look forward to taking it to other markets moving forward. But for us, it's always to say, how can we do something that's bringing 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people to come to Lagos for a weekend, to enjoy the culture, to enjoy the experience, and to just have fun. Our philosophy is that business and career does not have to be boring. You don't have to be stuffy. It doesn't have to be something that's for other people. You have to put on a face or a mask to do it. You can do it just how you are, drinking cocktails, listening to music, wearing your short shorts, wearing your head wrap, and you can still be authentic and have a good time. Yeah. So that has been an, a fantastic experience for us to create. It's hard. It is challenging. It's a lot of moving parts. But we've been so grateful for the support from our community and people saying, this experience has been cha- life-changing for us. People are getting jobs. They're making connections. They're getting encouraged. They're making money. We have vendors who are there who are selling out. So it's been incredible, and we look forward to making it blow, right? That's the goal. It's hundreds of thousands of people to come to live. How many people attended this edition? This past year, it was 2,600 people. Nice. And you're looking at growing it and building definitely, it. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. When is the next festival? We're working on, we hope to be able to do South Africa later in the year but it's a yearly concept so the next time it'll be in lagos will be in 2019. i have this last question um vimbai miss vimbai put up something on instagram you know talking about you know um kind of berating people who don't necessarily work for what they're spending mm-hmm. and there's you know a lot of reaction to it people replied a negative had positive reinforcement what is what is your thoughts on that and you know we get to see a lot of people on instagram and people ask we know where you work. We know what you do. You know, but your spend is pretty, <laughs> you know, it's pretty overboard. It's but, you know, it's you it's keep saying, you know, you're working and you're hustling for it, you know, and people start talking. What's your opinion? So I, I really like Vimbai, and I think there's beauty in in being honest, you know, about your perspective. So, And it's always about starting a conversation. So I think she did a really great job in doing that. I do believe that there is danger in storytelling because it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Like Instagram, I think they've actually said that this generation of people is the the most depressed, right? And I think it's definitely because of this gap, right? You look at where you are and you look at where other people are and you're like, what's wrong with me that I'm not there? And we've seen it with beauty, right? If only thing you see in the media are people who are light-skinned or people who have straight hair. You will now decide that that is the standard, and that's where you need to be, especially if you don't have strong cultural or family influences in your life. So there definitely is danger in storytelling that's not accurate and authentic. And I would hate for someone to see me and be like, oh, man, this girl's life is so sweet. She flies around all the time. Everything is booming. First of all, I fly economy. I be in the back, not even the front of economy, shot, not even premium economy. Close, Close to the toilet. The back, always, right? And, right, I'm paying for these flights myself, and I have, like, three layovers because that's the ticket that I can afford. 
But God forbid someone sees a photo of me and they're like, ah, she's jetting around every single week. You're like, no, this thing is work and it's hard. And so I appreciate her point around there are people who are looking, there are people who are unsure. And they're looking at this and they're developing a benchmark of what success should look like. And so I would not want someone who is 19 years old to see that and believe that that's what success looks like. And it's so hard because I think back in the day we didn't have all these ways to show off. Right, the media was much more controlled and it was limited, but now anyone can tell you anything, and there's very few filters. I think my challenge with her point was around there has to be a certain level of expertise that you have to reach before you can teach others. And for us, I I don't believe that expertise looks a certain way. I don't think it should be correlated with revenue, or with age, or with gender. I think there's all something there is something that we can all share with each other. And we can all help each other grow and do better. So $20 million, I think, is a lot of money. And it's fantastic. Right? If you want to talk about how to build a business, hopefully it's sustainable. Hopefully it's, it's ge- revenue that's generated consistently. But if not, if you've just been able to grow an Instagram account from zero to 5000 I think you can share that as well. Uh, the challenge is just if people are positioning themselves as something that is inaccurate or inauthentic and the dangers with that. But good for her in speaking her mind, right? And getting a conversation going about honesty and authenticity and letting people know that this thing is hard. And if it comes easy, it's likely to, to leave you easy. And so if you're able to build a strong foundation and then you know you work for it, you're, most, you're much more likely to be at ease and much less likely to be swayed, right? So when my friends are flexing, I'm like, fantastic, have fun. I know my journey and I know my path and I know that me too, I'll be flexing in 5 to 7 to 14 years. But it's not today that I need to do it. I think people just need to have that perspective and hopefully have that internal understanding that they can see what's real and what's fake. What was your conversation with Michelle Obama like when you met her? She's so nice. She's so tall. She smells great, right? (laughs) So part of it is you want to be cool. So I had the chance to work in her office for a little bit of time. And so um, she'd be at staff meetings, honestly. And you'd just be sitting there like, let me not embarrass myself. Uh, But kind of on our last day, Uh, She was just, you know, encouraging and very supportive, saying that, you know, we all have a role to play and how can we make our communities better? And it's okay to want to do well, but also how can we help others do well also? And so um, I think seeing someone like her who's so uh, accomplished, she has all the degrees in the world, she could be doing anything, um, and kind of just deciding to invest her time focusing on kids and military families and saying, how can we help our communities is fantastic. And that's how I view the work they were doing with SLA. Definitely, it's a business, and we want to be successful. But for us, the, the greatest joy comes from someone who sends us a story or writes us an email saying that this thing actually changed my life, right? I was encouraged to go start this offer, or I downloaded this interview guide, and I got the job, or I decided to look at you know my world a bit differently. I think we can all play a role with our businesses, with our nonprofits, with our government service to kind of make this world better and if we all did our little small part then we definitely have a much better society thank you so much Afua. thank you